Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Uglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Shiv Rao, who's the co-founder and CEO of Abridge. Abridge helps people better understand and follow through on their medical conversations. They officially launched and raised $15 million of funding in October and already have over 50,000 users. Dr. Rao is a cardiologist who was inspired to start the company due to a family health experience and from his own experiences caring for patients. I'd also like to thank Jack Einhorn for introducing us in the first place. And Shiv, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Shiv. So can you start by telling us a bit about yourself, what led you to your interest in medicine and then cardiology specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So like way back in the day, many lifetimes ago, I went to Carnegie Mellon for undergrad and I studied practically everything I'm not doing today. I was a history major. I minored in minority studies. I thought I could spend all my time skateboarding and that there was something there for me. I did a scholarship year where I programmed virtual synthesizers. I took critical theory classes. And I also heard a, a lecture from an architecture professor, William McDonough, who introduced this new idea for me at the time called design thinking. He told a story about an ophthalmologist in India who designed this revolving platform that he sits on and he brings patients in at 12, 3, 6, and 9 and does cataracts. So he like sits on it, does a cataract at 12, does a spin, does another cataract at 3, spin, another at 6, and just spinning all day long. And they bring in these patients who, who can't see from villages and on lorries. And he's, at the time of this lecture, he'd given eyesight to over a million people. And he had taught the procedure to his daughter, who didn't even have an MD, I think, but had given eyesight to over 400,000 people. And I just remember like my mind being blown and thinking about all the value that he had created and pretty late in the game, kind of pivoting to wanting to be a, a doctor. So I was uh, every Indian parent's nightmare for most of undergrad until, until I wasn't. That's awesome. And so can you tell us a bit about your medical school experience and then and then how you chose internal medicine and cardiology? Yeah, totally. I ended up going to med school at Pitt and I didn't see a lot of room for creativity there. Despite amazing mentors, it just felt like a ton of rote memorization. And there's just not, at least for me, there wasn't enough direct patient conversations and, and relationship building for me to be able to get through. And I went to Michigan for internal medicine residency, and the iPhone came out, and I taught myself some Ruby on Rails. Made a really bare bones web app, super embarrassing at this point, but people used it. So around that time, I was like, okay, this is where I need to live. I need to spend all of my time at the intersection of health and tech. I think that's a part of what led me to cardiology too. I was between cardiology and critical care and residency. Loved the ICU, one of my like favorite places to be. I think it's actually not unlike a startup. You know what you're trying to achieve. Like when you come in the morning and you like you're looking at your list of patients, you know what your objectives are for any given patient. But then they're so sick, they're all in extremis. You have to build prototypes quickly and throw them out there, ship them as quickly as you can, get feedback, and then pivot or persevere depending on what kind of feedback you get, what the metrics look like. So I think in that sense, maybe that did prepare me for the mentality you need in an early stage startup. I think early stage startups are like ICU patients. But cardiology otherwise, I think is a pretty amazing combination of bedside rapport, communication, stories, histories, and also procedures. So you end up having the ability on the whole loop from history taking to diagnosis to treatment. And I think that was also very compelling for me. Yeah, I think that's a great description. We've had a number of guests on Ray's line who are cardiologists, people like Dr. Asim Desai, who wrote about a recent book about atrial fibrillation, Eric Topol, who I'm sure you know, who's also written books on AI mm -hmm. as well. 
And then another person we may have at some point is Dr. Dave Albert, who started LiveCore. So I think there are a lot of cardiologists who, who've created companies like yourself, and it seems like especially that attracts innovative people. So speaking of innovation, you've described the story of a bridge to me before, but for our audience, could you tell them kind of why this problem and why now? Yeah, so a little bit of context to continue along with that story, which I think will, will lend some color. When I graduated my cardiology fellowship, I ended up at the right place and right time, a really large hospital system that was, and continues to invest lots of money into all things innovation. And I violated Peter's principle many times over just a few years and ended up in a position where I was managing the provider-facing portfolio investments and also R&D. And I learned a ton in that experience over, over those years. But one thing that I learned was that the barriers to entry in health tech are sometimes as high as the barriers to exit. And so those companies that were sort of stuck in between, and I won't name them, but we all know them, don't have to innovate. Like they can still look like these relics of like the early 90s and like the worst user experience and no real kind of data API sort of microservices oriented infrastructure. They can be incredibly backwards yet continue to break in tons and tons of money year over year over year for a lot of different reasons. But when you're downstream of that kind of a legacy hegemonic system, no matter how good your idea is, your math is, your statistics, you're beholden to them and your business model is not going to be better than them. And distribution is going to be incredibly difficult to get. In best case scenario, maybe you're looking to exit to them. So if that's something that can like inspire you to wake up in the morning and, and go for it, then like great. But if you're looking to do something a bit bigger, then you have no choice but to invoke first principles and think about what the original signals in healthcare are. So for me, for personal and for professional reasons, even as a cardiologist, for me, healthcare delivery, the point of care is the most exciting place. And it's like the trickiest place. But I think that's why it's also the most exciting place because I think people could argue that so much of the $3 trillion in healthcare is actually downstream of those conversations. Because that is what the original signal is. Upstream of all the diagnostics, whether it's a, a COVID test or a chest X-ray or a CT, upstream of all the therapeutics, whether it's a baby aspirin or a COVID vaccination or some cutting-edge immunotherapy, upstream of everything usually is a conversation between a clinician and a patient. And it's happening increasingly virtually. It's also happening in person. But creating technology that can find a way to Structuring the information from those unstructured conversations for us means that we can do two things. This is really the mission of the company. We can, number one, help people better understand their care, their health. And number two, we can help them better follow through. So in terms of the problem we're trying to solve, when you think about it and when you look at the research, people forget most of what the doctor said. And there's research out of Dartmouth that suggests that people forget up to 85% of what the doctor said. 85%. And when we did our own research with thousands of our own users, we found that they remember just the very beginning of the conversation where you might just exchange pleasantries, talk about like the NFL season or the weather or your kids. And then the very end where the doctor might say, all right, Mr. Smith, you're doing great. See you in six months. But everything in between where a medication dose was adjusted or a referral was placed or a diagnostic was ordered, all that sometimes in one ear, out the other. And that's, I think, mind-blowing to me as a doctor because inside the hospital industrial complex, we use words like compliance and apportionment. And maybe better than that, we use words like adherence. And we know that adherence, even for one diagnosis like diabetes, is like a 20-some billion dollar problem. We use these words, but 
are they fair to use when like people are forgetting 85% of what they're actually told? Like how can we expect any of us as humans to follow through? To give you a sense of the problem from a bit more of a visceral perspective, both myself and my co-founder Sandeep, our CTO, came at this with for personal reasons and also for professional reasons. From a personal standpoint for myself, what I realized you know, years ago when my wife and I went through an IVF journey for years to have a healthy child and it's a happy ending with twin four-year-old boys, what I realized was like she would come back from visits and I'd ask her what happened. And so often she said she had no idea. And some portion of the time it's because they were telling her, but when you're going through something, it's so hard to capture the details. But some portion of the time I realized they weren't telling her actually. And, and sometimes the incentives aren't aligned within the system to actually tell your patient what's actually happening. But then it, I think there's another portion of time when she knew exactly what was going on, but it's like that 5,000 paper cuts that to repeat your story over and over and over again to everyone from like the med student to the resident to the consultant, every single family member when you get home. But as a doctor in March of 2018, I saw this patient in my own clinic, remains an incredibly inspiring force for me personally, because I think everyone in our company has their own story. And that's what I think also special about this, this problem that we're trying to solve. But this patient of mine, she had a 10 years for your breast cancer, and she was about to start chemotherapy that could affect her heart. And she was super nervous and anxious with me, like crawling out of her skin. So at the end, I asked her why. And if there's something I did or something I said to make her feel so uncomfortable. And she told me that for the last 10 years, her husband had come to every single visit with a doctor except that one. He just couldn't make it. So I asked her, well, what does he do? That's not obvious. And she told me that he sits in the corner, he's quiet, he just takes notes. And she's an English professor, incredibly eloquent, and she explains to me that it doesn't matter if it's a really bad skin rash or if it's something like what she has cancer. It's so hard when you're in that visit to be present. There's so much power asymmetry, so much information asymmetry, and you're so worried that you're going to forget something incredibly crucial to your health that you're sort of, you're just incredibly anxious. So him taking notes meant that she could feel liberated to be in the moment, knowing that they could go home and unpack those notes, digest them, and then go to the next clinician and feel like the main characters of their story as opposed to someone looking in from the outside. So essentially what our app does at a really high level, we are trying to distribute, democratize everything and automate everything that he did in the corner of the room and everything that they did at home together. That's fascinating. I can definitely relate having both been a patient and also taken oral histories or tried counseling patients as a, as a medical student. You're building a treasure trove of data. And can you tell us a bit about any statistics you can share in 50,000 users, how much recorded conversation you have, and then what are some of the coolest applications, not just coolest, but most game-changing applications you think a bridge will have, you know, getting that 85% for getting down to 30% or, or lower and then improving adherence, as you were mentioning, is definitely one. But what are some of the other things we should be thinking about? We launched the first version of our app in July 2019. And over the course of last year, we're now over 50,000 users. And for those people, we've helped them better understand over 400,000 medical terms. And we've also helped them better understand over 52,000 conversation takeaways. So those are like the next steps in a conversation where maybe a doctor's told you to, to start a medication or stop a medication or get a procedure or see a certain specialist. In terms of that treasure trove of data, yeah, there's no question there's a lot of data involved here. That said, when we started the company, we made a, a strategic decision that was very expensive, but we think incredibly important for any type of company in this space dealing with this type of sensitive data. We decided to start this company with this 
this thesis that privacy is paramount and that we needed to invest in privacy by design principles from day zero. So that's a lot of work that I think the average consumer tech startup any other space probably isn't going to invest a lot of cycles into. So for us, that meant we had to, you know, think about not only our operations, but our business processes. We had to build best in class privacy policy, like from day zero. We only collect and share data with user consent. People really own their own data. Delete means delete, share means share. People can export their data anytime they want. We never sell data. We make that explicit in our privacy policy. And all our R&D today has been on de-identified data and external data sets. But we have this really unfair advantage in terms of being able to aggregate those data sets, which means that we've, we've been able to date, we've been able to publish over, I think, 10 papers now in like medical conversation AI that gives us these sort of tools to create and, and deliver the user experiences that we're really after. So privacy by design is really fundamental to us. And, and one of the reasons why we chose our lead investor Union Square Ventures is that I think a part of their thesis really is that trust is the new network. And that there is this trust gap with a lot of large technology companies and, and startups have an opportunity to actually think about trust from day zero. Think about transparency, reliability, and credibility from day zero. And, and, and those companies that can build that in differentiated ways can really build differentiated brands. So I think beyond privacy and trust, I think in terms of those user experiences, our mission really it helps us make decisions across every layer of the stack of the company. And if the mission is to help people understand and follow through, I think like the most exciting features that we'll be experimenting on and, and, and testing in 2021 really are on like different versions of follow through. So today, if someone hears this and downloads a bridge from the App Store, it's free. They can start using it immediately, and they could test drive it. There are people who are using it for audio health diaries, for example, where they're just sort of like using it as a symptom tracker. And there's COVID long haulers who are using it that way, for example. But you could press the record button, and you could start, drop some medical language, drop some you know jargon, some medications, diagnoses, symptoms, or procedures, and then press stop and see how well it did. Because what we've trained is a system that selectively pulls out the medical moments from a conversation. And then beyond that, it gives you the ability to sort of tap to play selectively that part of the conversation. And then it layers on education on top of all that jargon. So we're trying to position ourselves as an extension of like the best doctor's intention to help their patients be healthy and, and follow a plan. So we're super excited now, like the killer features that we're, we're just starting to deploy are really around helping you follow through where you could record a conversation and maybe I'm, the doc, I'm your doctor and I tell you that you really need to get an echocardiogram or start take your products every day. And you might turn the app off and completely forget about a bridge because you know we're not trying to like engage you every day if we don't need to, that's not our game. But perhaps our tech cohorted you and, and recognized that there's something important in this conversation about a new medication or a procedure that you're supposed to get. And you might get a notification that says, Shiv, we want to remind you about a, a key medication that Shiv helps you about. And you open up the app and we're helping you play selectively the part of the conversation where I said, you got to take your products every day. And we're not putting words in anyone's mouth. You tap, you play it. And then we want to help you better follow through. Maybe that means we're sending you reminders every day to nudge you to take your products. Maybe that means hooking you up 
with other services that can help you fill that medication. But that's, I think, the most exciting direction that we're headed in. Definitely an automated follow-up and what Alexa is doing and, and Google Mini are doing for home use, but you guys obviously are well positioned to do it in the clinical setting. One other application that I'm I'm excited about, you know, as I got to know you in the bridge, is when I was in business school, HBS does a really good job of making sure their professors are top-notch. They do a lot of training, they do a lot of recording of the professors giving not lectures because they don't believe in lecture model, but encouraging dialogue and calling on different people and responding and moving the conversation on the case along. And the secret to that is they record the professors doing all sorts of mock sections, actual sections, and then give them actionable feedback to improve their pedagogy. As medical knowledge becomes automated already through point of care solutions, and that'll be even more in the next few years, you know, the soft skills, so-called soft skills will be even more important. And being able to connect things like the sentiment on the conversation, length of the conversation, all these other factors that whether it's a nurse practitioner or doctor or CNA interacting with a patient could be a feedback loop to that provider to how, how do you become more caring? What types of things could you say in those conversations that would lead to higher patient satisfaction scores? As an example, we had Mel Hall, who was the longtime CEO of Prescani on Ray's line. And obviously patient satisfaction will help reduce you know, malpractice. It'll improve outcomes, that kind of stuff. So has that been a conversation that you guys have looked at too? Or Absolutely. It's interesting because I think if we were positioned on trying to help people, let's say, save time with their documentation, then I think undoubtedly we really have to build a solution that helped improve efficiencies and maybe helped improve billing. And then potentially it's a solution that contributes to the inflationary economics that we see in healthcare. But our positioning is more about what you said. It's about helping improve the quality of the conversation. Because if you can improve the quality of the conversation, you should be improving the quality of the relationship. You should be improving the quality of, of the care that's actually delivered, which should mean ultimately outcomes and costs. And so that idea that you just described is, is incredibly exciting to us and something that we've been investing a lot of R&D cycles into, especially with our, our colleagues at, at Dartmouth, at Yale, and at Carnegie Mellon. Are you familiar with gong.io? Yeah, the sales training. Yeah, exactly. There's four study actually. But there's really interesting companies that do that for, for salespeople. And what if we could do exactly what you described? What if we could very gently call out moments where maybe a clinician could have listened a little bit more? Or maybe where the, the medical terminology was a bit too expert. So it's certainly a really exciting area to explore. We're just rushing up against that now because now people can record their conversations and they can share a version of the summary, they can copy a version of the summary over to the clinician. And now we're starting to sort of thread that needle between consumer and clinician. So it'll be really interesting to explore these ideas. That's really interesting. And maybe what about powering virtual avatars to do those conversations themselves, right? Like we've been looking at osmosis a lot at AWS, Amazon Web Services, Poly, where you can take our videos and automatically transcribe them into other languages, but also then have Luis in Brazil narrating. I think there's a lot of applications there where maybe the conversations themselves could be had. Because as far as I know, you guys are among the only ones that are developing really robust data sets of, of conversations. You know, there's chatbots, there's EHR, structured, unstructured data, but the actual conversation is something that doesn't get captured as often for privacy concerns. But, but the fact that you guys are privacy first is, is really important. So I know, I know we're coming up on time, but I, I guess 
switching gears to COVID, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on how COVID has affected the bridge and then also what the long-term changes you think will happen to the healthcare system as a result of COVID. Well, I think one of the most profound things that we, we all saw during COVID was that it seemed like healthcare really reduced itself. For example, people put aside billing issues or, or specifics about HIPAA even in some instances, all in the name of making sure that everyone who needed care could get it. And that meant, for example, some systems using the telephone to connect to their patients to deliver care, just the humble old old school telephone to connect to their, to their patients, which, which I think was incredibly valuable and really, really interesting. And I think it's like a, a tailwind that will be hard to, to stall now. I think another thing we noticed too was people actually optimizing, you know, again, for the ultimate end user in healthcare, the patient, but clinicians, the other set of end users starting to kind of become a consumer themselves, starting to shop a bit, like trying to find the best telemedicine solution that could suit their needs, like starting to optimize for something that's pretty alien to any solution they're probably using within their hospital system, but starting to optimize for user experience or their patient's user experience. So I think that's that's pretty profound as well. And I think these tailwinds that are in place from COVID in terms of all of us being much more aware of our health than ever before, people wearing masks is a daily sort of signifier, is a daily reminder that we should be thinking about our health. And then I think tailwinds in relation to an information blocking rule that got implemented and that will be in full force in early 2021, which necessitates that consumers have access to their own data from medical records and from insurance companies. Really great tailwinds in relation to open notes, people getting access to their own notes from, from the doctor's chart. All of this coming together, I think, sets us up over the next couple of years for, I think, unprecedented innovation. And I think those barriers to entry that I led with, I think they have come down. And it's all of a sudden more possible than ever to do all the things that we've been dreaming on for health tech for the last decade. Absolutely. It's definitely an exciting time. And I think this has been a catalyst for change. You know, two weeks ago, I had Vivian Lee from Verily, who also was the former CEO of University of Utah Health, on the podcast. And her book, The Long Fix, if you haven't read it, quite quite a good book, really highlighted, you know, this shift from being a stage on stage kind of caregiver to being a co-producer of healthcare. And she highlighted open notes very specifically. And I can imagine if she publishes a second book, a bridge would be part of that too, because that's essentially what you're doing. You're shifting the balance of power away from just the health clinic or that one time you have an appointment with your physician to something that you can continuously refer to and take more control over your own health. Health isn't something that happens to you. It's something that you help produce. My last question is, you wear many hats. You're a CEO of a company. You're a cardiologist. And what advice would you give to people, our audience at Osmosis, which is millions of current and future healthcare professionals, Given the challenges of the COVID moment and beyond, what advice would you want to give them? I think more than anything, it's that their skill set, what they're getting really, really deep in is more important now than ever. And the ability for them to cross that skill set, to cross that depth in healthcare with something else, I think will afford them the ability to really think outside the box and, and be creative. And I think now more than ever, there's just there's room for that creativity. I think you I was speaking to my uncle recently and he was like, I wish I could have done what you're doing. I just never had those opportunities. And I think it's a different time now where that depth in healthcare is as important as ever. 
but now also there's there's more room for people to think outside the box and apply that depth in really new and interesting ways to combine with other disciplines to do really, really impactful things. Absolutely. Just like you did at Michigan when you taught yourself Ruby on Rails and started building iPhone apps. Today, it's even easier than ever before with the no-code movement as an example. So those of our audience who are listening who want to be a future Dr. Shivrao should take part and see if they can start learning some of these other skill sets so they can become T-shaped and go deep in medicine but have other skills. So with that, Shiv, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And we're definitely in the show notes going to you know, point our audience to download a bridge and check it out and use it with their patients to see if it's awesome. that can add value so for them. I'm sure it will. Awesome. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise lines since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>